I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. was thinking some of y'all know me pretty well you have a pretty good understanding of how I came to view the world the way I do but many of you don't have a good sense of who I am My uh, my mom always always told me I had this um, way of wearing an outer facade in such a way that it kept people at arm's length um, to protect myself, I guess, and uh, in, in some manner of speaking from getting too close to people we could spend hours trying to diagnose that particular aspect of my personality but i'm i got into the idea of podcasting honestly just based off of somebody somebody in passing, telling me that I had a perfect voice for radio years ago. I was with a friend of mine. It was around Christmas time. He had family visiting. Uh, We were just sitting around. I was chatting with his uncle. And just in passing, he was like, are you on the radio? And I was, yeah. And he goes, you have a really good voice for radio. So... That's kind of where the idea stems from for doing a podcast, as well as me being quite opinionated. Over the years, my opinions have have become more honed and more more thought out. I think I'm more thoughtful in the way I, I, maybe not the way I express myself, but at least the opinions I express. I recognize nuance a lot more than I did when I was younger. When I was in my 20s, I was very abrasive um, with my opinions. I, was, I would mock you. 
just for thinking different. But, <coughs> excuse me, um, this wasn't a, but at the time it wasn't a political thing. It was just, I was just, you know, it was minor things. Um, how I felt about music, let's just say, or um, the idea of, I don't know, um, owning specific cars or the type of motorcycle I would ride or, or things like that. And I was... I don't know. I was an asshole. Uh, you know, what 20 year old kid isn't an asshole, uh, to some aspect, to some extent, but going from there to where I am today was revelatory in, uh, in its journey. And the story that that I want to tell is is very intimate, is very personal. And it might give a little bit of the a window into why. I continue to look like some methed out biker um, as opposed to embracing any sort of customary, traditional, intellectual look, which I don't even consider myself an intellectual. I just enjoy I'm, I'm just curious. That's it. I'm just a curious person. I think I've always had that within me. Um, I just, I want to know. I, I would rather, I would rather find out that I've always been wrong than never know for sure. And if there's anything that I can't know for sure in some aspect or another, such as religion, let's say, if the if there's no intellectual path to acquiring just knowledge on that specific subject, I just kind of shrug and walk away. And I'll just tell you straight up, if you bring the, if you bring up the subject with me, I'll just tell you, you weren't there. You can't know. There's no way of knowing. It's impossible. That's my point of view on this subject when it comes to religion. You just can't know. So I don't reject an omnipresent being an ever powerful or architect of the universe any more than I cling to one. It's just to me, it's a matter of 
knowledge. And I don't foresee there being a path to truly knowing. I'm not a big believer in faith. Um, I think faith is a lie sold to people to set them up for failure, to prepare them for a worst case scenario. Maybe give them a a false sense of security despite whatever type of disasters they may face in life. It's good for some people. It doesn't work for me. It drives me absolutely fucking crazy to not know, you know? So, so that's, that's a little bit of it. But I want to start this with an old parable everybody is at least somewhat familiar with. And I want to look at the cave and how we're all sitting there and we're watching the shadow puppets on the wall. We're giggling. We find it entertaining. And I look to the, le- to the right and I look to the left. And I notice that the people sitting around me enjoying the puppet show along with me, the shadows on the wall dancing, telling jokes, robbing banks, performing all types of insane adventures. The people around me are three-dimensional, and the shadows on the wall aren't. I can't touch them. I can't embrace them. I can't even make any specific detail out as to what is occurring. Whether they have blue eyes brown eyes, long hair, short hair. None of it. There's nothing identifiable about these shadows. And when I realized that there was nothing concrete about the shadows, nothing real about them, that it was all just a show to distract me, I began to look around and I found my way out of the cave. And I saw the real world for what it was. I saw some beauty, a stream, fruit growing on a tree, And then I saw some horrors. Man involved in war. The murdering of children. 
the torture of human beings. The imprisonment of nonviolent offenders. And as I studied the surrounding world, the place of nature, as dangerous as it might be, as cruel as it can be, captured me in its beauty while the institutes of men ostracized me in their horror. So I turned around and I went back in the cave and I started telling others about it. I told others about the adventure I had been on. An adventure they could only see in their mind. They would have to imagine it. I'm sure they saw shadow puppets. Nothing concrete, nothing real. And they began to laugh. And they told me I should have been one of the puppet masters. I should have written a script for one of the plays that they watch on the wall. That the film that I was describing, the shadows and the movements, would have made for great entertainment. But none of them believed me. And that's kind of where many of us are today. Wow, you got a hell of imagination. But that's not real. That's not how things work. What are you talking about? And the more evidence that you propose, the more angry these people get. The inhabitants of the cave. Those refusing to leave the matrix. Whatever, however you may view them. But they get angry. They don't like it. You're questioning everything they know as reality. But are they hopeless? No, they're not hopeless. Unfortunately, by the time they realize what you've been telling them is true and that you're not trying to just be right. You're trying to help them escape. It may be too late for them. What it took for me was the realization of what it actually was to be against power. To have power aimed at you in such a way that it affected the rest of your life. And I'm not talking about going to prison. Not in the terms that you would think of going to prison. Though the life I've lived has been a type of prison in some ways. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm still dealing with this cold. I, I really apologize for that. I'm not talking about conscription 
into war. I'm not talking. I apologize for that. A phone call came in and it always fucks up the sound when I'm trying to record on my damn phone. I'm not talking about conscription into war or anything of that nature. I'm talking about going through a divorce. When I was young, I uh, I met my first wife. I was, I guess I was, it was my 16th birthday. We started dating. Uh, we broke up. We got together. We broke up. We got together. Yeah. Teenage bullshit. You know, all that kind of good. Third time we got together, we stayed together. Um, I think I was, I was 17 or 18 at this time. She got pregnant. We got married. I am 19 at this point. Um, we got married. My son was, he's my oldest son. He was six months old. Then about a year later, a little bit over a year later, she got pregnant again and had my daughter and then I guess it was right at nine months ten months after my daughter was born my third son was born when my third son was born I was in basic training this was in 2001 he was born just before the uh, attacks on 9-11. And we seemed like, it seemed like things were going to be okay until around Thanksgiving. And I was in, I guess I was in airborne school at this time. I got out of airborne school. I went to RIP. Ended up getting sent to... um, I failed out of RIP, Ranger Indoctrination Program, due to an injury I I had gotten in airborne school. I was sent to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. In Fort Bragg, I was... I got... I was able to get some leave and I went to pick up my young wife and our three young children drove all the way back to North Carolina from Houston, Texas Um, we got there and within a 24 hour period she told me she was going to divorce me, that she was leaving well she didn't say she was going to divorce me She said she wanted to go back home, that she wasn't comfortable. And I said, well, apparently we have things to work out, yada, yada, yada. (coughs) Excuse me again, I'm sorry. Um, Anyway, 
we ended up getting divorced in, I guess it was finalized in 2003. I was discharged from the military in 2002 due to basically what was happening was my wife at the time had stopped paying for some uh, a lot of the bills I couldn't get her to talk to me I began drinking really heavily I uh, I searched for help within the military. I could get no help within the military. Uh, they eventually asked me, what do you want to do? I said, well, get me the fuck out of here. Y'all aren't going to help me any. And I can't do anything while I'm here. So they discharged me. Um, I don't know. Once I got out, I really didn't try to do anything. I guess I realized shortly after getting out. And once I started seeing how the process was working and that everything she did, the state assisted her in doing in, in, acquiring basically sole parenthood of my children. The state had manipulated all language into such a way that it said that we had this joint custody relationship, but within this joint custody relationship I was required upon her insistence or her request I was required to have um, some sort of monitored visits I was I was to if 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 she ever felt like I was incapable of being around the children. Suddenly, I had to adhere to whatever type of monitoring or um, I don't even know what to call it, supervision that she insisted upon. <coughs> so... Even though I was told I had joint custody and the law recognized it as joint custody due to her weaving tales of lies to the judge about me, accusing me of being abusive Then the judge then turned 
the entire state of Texas against me in such a way that I no longer had any say within my children's lives at this point. All I could do was pay child support and request dates upon which I could see my children. I had no expectation of fair treatment. I had no expectation of any authority or authoritative decision in my children's lives. I had no expectation that my children would be raised in any way that I had a say in their actual upbringing. My sole purpose in the eye of the state and in the eye of my ex-wife was to provide financial support. That was it. That was, that was my sole responsibility in my children's lives. I had no claim on, on any other aspect of their life other than making sure that they were paid for. Upon getting out of the military, because she had filed for divorce while I was still in the military, and the divorce proceedings went on, they, they drug it out eight months, I started off eight months behind on child support. Immediately. I was eight months behind. Despite her emptying out my bank accounts, despite her always having access to my bank accounts, up until the day that she filed for divorce, which is when I took her name off my accounts and opened up separate accounts that were not joint with hers. Despite all of that, the state immediately required me to pay eight months of back child support plus state fees plus interest. And at this time, I didn't have a job. I was looking, but we were in in the Clinton recession at the beginning of the Bush presidency. And it was hard to find work. I took jobs working 13, 14 hours a week at grocery stores until my mom introduced me to some connections of hers at Halliburton. They hired me. <clears throat> I learned how to drive a truck. And I hated it immediately. I would be gone 120 hours a week 
by this time I'd already met someone else, which somebody I'd already known for quite a few years. I had known since high school. And uh, we were dating. We're sharing an apartment. She, uh, she also got pregnant. That's another story. But we'll get there. And as time wore on, my ex-wife, my first ex-wife, would file grievances against me with the attorney general because at the very beginning of the divorce, I was immediately behind 10 months on child support. And the attorney general would call us in and we would sit there in an office and they would ask, how far behind are you? And I would say, I don't know. I spend every waking hour working so that y'all can take money out of my paycheck and send it to her. You tell me. I don't have time to pay, to pay attention to it. I don't have the patience to pay attention to it. I'm just working. And, they, and she would say, well, you're such and such thousand dollars behind. And I would say, okay, well, what do you want to do? And she goes, well, I can put you in jail for that. Now, why would you put me in jail for trying to catch up on money that I owe. Why would you put anyone in jail for not being able to pay a bill? And they would look at my ex-wife and they would ask her, what do you want to do? And she'd say, no, he's working and I'm getting money, so it's okay. So she was the arbiter. She was the ultimate authority using the power of the state to determine whether or not I went to jail. It was her decision whether or not I was going to go to jail. In the meantime, I would go weeks without seeing my children because she said so. They would come to my house telling me all of the evil things that their mother was putting into their head, telling them about me. And if I had a grievance, it would cost me $2,500 just to have an attorney look at the case. This was not including a trial. This was not including anything else. This was just for an attorney to say, huh, okay, you might have something here. We can get this taken care of to where you're not under her arbitrary authority to decide whether or not your visitations are supervised or whether or not you even get those visitations at all. This fight never stopped. 
This was constant. Day in, day out. For 20 years. Almost 20 years. But 19 years. I fought this. And I fought this. And I dealt with this. And I dealt with my children dealing with this. And as the years went by, my children and I became further and further removed from each other. Our relationship was more and more damaged. We had less and less time together. Their lives got busier and busier. Until there was very little, if any, communication at all between us. The communication that does occur is not what you would expect between a father and his children. It is very short to the point. Like maybe seeing an, a second cousin or, or a distant uncle. There's no tenderness or regret that the relationship was so frayed from the beginning. And yeah, their mother shares a very hefty amount of responsibility for that. I'm not completely innocent of, of deeds and attitude toward their mother. One thing I always made sure was they respected their mother. Nobody ever badmouthed their mother around me. And upon reflection, years and years and years of reflection, and having gone through a second divorce, I was able to recognize the mother wasn't the problem. That the mother was utilizing the tools available to her And as we know, power corrupts. And as she realized that she could wield this power that the state had placed into her hands, she did. She wielded it. She wielded it viciously at times. She didn't hide it. She didn't pretend she didn't know what she was doing. She had full control of the narrative at home. 
and the backing of the state when it came to dealing with me. As long as I didn't have the money to pay for an attorney, to pay for trial, there was no fight I could bring to her. And as I start began to get to a point to where I could potentially afford to fight for the children, I watched. I watched as a friend of mine who went through a very similar circumstance in a 10-year period spent $40,000 on legal fees. $40,000 on legal fees that got him no closer to any parental rights with, with his children. That actually drove a larger chasm between himself and his children. And it totally destroyed the p- possibility of making up with his children. And I realized that out of love for my children, just as I had refused to express to them my thoughts on who their mother was and what had happened between us, Just as I had refused to badmouth her in front of them, it was upon me to accept the pain that I had to endure at the hands of the state power their mother wielded in order to leave them the opportunity to come to their own understanding in their own time. And to this day, there's nothing healed in completion, there's uncertainty as to the future, but I understood that the use of state power in the ability to pick winners and losers In any confrontation, in any dispute, is unjust. That wielding state power to shut down a competitive business because you have influence and connections, wielding state power to overthrow governments in order to 
monopolize resources of a region, wielding state power to destroy an ex, an ex-wife or an ex-husband is immoral. It's unethical. It's unjust. And the existence of that power, not only should it not be wielded in a combative way, in an offensive way, but it is illegitimate in its existence at all. This experience and reflecting on the use of state power for your own benefit, for your own comfort, to create your idea of a utopia at the expense of another human being or other human beings, whether those are children in Yemen or a father in Detroit, is in its essence an operation of conquest, domination, and oppression. And that power not only should never be utilized offensively, it shouldn't exist. Now, I know I'm repeating that, but I think that's the essence of how I got to being a voluntarist, how I became an anarchist. It was that power. It's like, I didn't even feel it. I didn't feel the wrath of it in its full essence. There was an unexperienced woman that out of bitterness and her position as a mother was handed that power to wield against me. But never once did it occur to those that created that power structure that it may be wielded in such a manner. And if it did occur to them, they are complicit in the crime of separating fathers from their children, separating families within the borders. And for that reason, I will never support men's rights activists because what they want to do is reverse the balance of power to be used against the mothers in a case of a divorce. And I disagree with that too. All divorce should, as a civil union, be dealt with in arbitration as two adults debating property, and the raising of their children. 
just as they would be doing within a marriage. Because despite the ability to divorce, the children are still a binding contract until they are of age to have escaped the grasp of the parental units. But in short, those are my opinions on how divorce should be handled. Those are my opinions on why the current structure of civil government is illegitimate and immoral. And that is how I ended up turning my back on a state that I once swore to go die for. I'm Tommy Salmons. Late.